Hello and welcome to Small Town Discourse. It's a political discussion podcast with some people on opposite ends of the political spectrum. I just snapped and pointed (laughs) at Allison and Tom. Uh, Allison, say hi. Hi, what's up? Thomas, say hi. I'm back. Uh, In the (laughs) studio with us today, we have uh, a special guest. Well, we have just as special as anyone else, I would maybe. Well, never (laughs) mind. That sounds kind of... Maybe more special, perhaps (laughs) perhaps more special. But this is uh, Jay Steinmetz. Uh, He was uh, one of my film professors or poli-sci professors. It was both. Um, And yeah, so Jay, do you want to tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Thanks. Um, Good to be here. It should be an interesting talk. Um, I think I'm less special. I was categorized as (laughs) earlier in the year. I hope that my license still holds. And uh, yeah, it's good to be here. I'm uh, visiting assistant professor at Willamette University right now, and my PhD is in political science, but I do a lot of movie stuff. My dissertation was on the development of the Hollywood movie industry from around 1907 to 1927. So the kind of the first two decades of the American film industry and how it shaped toward a kind of what I call depoliticized or where politics is kind of tamped down within the narrative and within the characters themselves. And uh, the industry had to kind of push back against explicitly political propagandistic cinema, Mm -hmm. non-commercial cinema, educative, religious cinema, et cetera, et cetera, and shape the industry toward a coordinated producer distributors who have consolidated power in Southern California around narrative-based, the Hollywood dream factory, Mm -hmm. fictionalized entertainment. So... It's, it was a fun book to write, and um, my, those are I continue to develop those research interests as I go along. So, so are you, are, is it Doctor Steinmetz? Is that what yeah. I? Yeah. Okay. Well, I didn't know that, so now I do. <laughs> uh, this is Doctor Jay Steinmetz. I guess so. I can't operate on your knee or anything. I prefer <laughs> to not be called a doctor, but yes, I have. A okay. <laughs> so um, awesome. So we've all prepared here. I when I took your class, I read uh, your paper. It's called. Uh, as close as we get to going to the movies, the problem of evil in Schindler's List and Inglorious Bastards. It's a good paper. You can find it online, PDF. I suggest everyone read it. But, uh, Jay, do you want to maybe give a quick synopsis of what you <laughs> might remember it to have been about? I'll do my very best. So I think I wrote this in about 2012. That's about five years ago, I think. Um, just right at, as Inglorious Bastards had come out into the movie uh, theater, I saw so much of Schindler's List in this movie in an interesting way, in the sense of uh, the relationship between good and evil on the movie screen. I think part of the argument that I was trying to develop in this paper is that there is something... Uh, one one might regard something a little morally problematic about the relationship between good and evil in the movie Schindler's List from 1993, directed by Steven Spielberg, in the sense that evil is so deeply entrenched and good, the, the relationship between good and evil is really starkly black and white. Um, the characters in that film are really evil. They're animalistic, and they're really shaped in a narrative sense as being not human, being precisely animals. And as I kind of develop in the paper, and I take some leaning from political theorists like William Connolly and his book Identity Difference from the early 1990s, that there is something problematic about moral constitutions that are so starkly divided between good and evil, especially when we see the other as purely evil and as something not human. I think it's kind of a dangerous lesson for the Holocaust to consider um, the idea that the perpetrators of the Holocaust are, are not human beings. I think that misses a fundamental and crucial lesson of the Holocaust, which is that they are human beings. This is what human beings are capable of. Human beings are capable of genocide. And um, they're, they're w- Schindler's List both launched 
a kind of what I call the Hollywood Holocaust genre um, really kind of takes off from there. And I did a bit of quantitative study in this research as well, showing that indeed there's a, there are a lot more Holocaust movies after Schindler's List than there were before. Yeah, I actually have it right here. It's the last 20 years. Okay, in the 16 years before Schindler's List, there were 21 uh, Holocaust movies and 14 documentaries. And then the 16 years after, there were 40 feature films and uh, 47 documentaries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's a huge increase. Yeah, it's a pretty substantial increase. And, and um, in fact, you know, another element of the project that I didn't develop nearly uh, as much are cinematic and uh, uh, just visual, broadly visual representations of Adolf Hitler. And um, I, I tried to catalog in a spreadsheet uh, instances, visual instances of Hitler in pop culture, in mainstream culture. And it's interesting to see that, you know, the image of Hitler and the idea of Hitler hasn't receded as we move further from the historical moment of the Holocaust. In fact, there has been almost a veritable explosion of Hitler-esque pop images that um, sort of populate our uh, cultural, political discourse um, and our kind of collective consciousness, if you will. And that, I think, is really fascinating to think about, just as from a social science perspective, right? That's my PhD is in political science. So I'm not... I'm not a culture studies person. I'm not a humanities scholar. I'm really interested in looking at variation and asking questions about variation or difference or change. And I think it's a fascinating question to ask, why have representations of Adolf Hitler and why have there been, why has the Holocaust as a, as a, as a cultural touchstone for Hollywood um, only increased as we move further from the historical event? That seems to be a fascinating question for me. Was it because you're able to like pers- personify like the whole event as like one evil thing? Is that like maybe what you're thinking that you're getting at, or do you, do you have any ideas? Well, yeah, I mean, why? I have a couple of ideas. I think that um, part of it is a need to preserve the cultural and historical memory of the Holocaust and the event that took place. And uh, as there are fewer survivors left with us today. There is almost an imperative, a necessity, and an anxious necessity, I would suggest as well, to catalog, to preserve, to touch on the memory, to um, not let it recede into the past. I think that, in other words, that precisely because we're moving further away from the historical moment, it seems that culture somewhat more anxiously wants to touch upon it and reproduce and reconstitute it and develop it in all of these ways um, so that we don't lose it, so to speak. And that leads me to uh, Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards because I think that this movie is best understood as a comment on that, right? As a comment on this idea that the Hollywood Holocaust genre has kind of exploded and that we need to touch upon this moment. And Tarantino, it, Tarantino's movie has obviously nothing to do with history, right? It has to do with like kind of sort of like conscious violations yeah. of history, right? Sort of like ironic sort of turn it 180 degrees. Uh, the Jews become those who commit massacres and, and Hitler and the Nazi high command become victims, you know, trapped in a building where, where the building uh, is set on fire. Um, ways in which pogroms and violence against the Jews in Europe had been committed for centuries, sort of locked in synagogues and other buildings and the building being set on fire. And then they get blowed up. Yeah, they get blowed up. And (laughs) and you get to see, as I mentioned in the paper, you know, like Tarantino sort of very much uh, wants to give uh, American and world audiences what they really wish and hope for, which is to see Adolf Hitler eviscerated in a whale of bullets in a medium close-up shot. We want (laughs) to see that. Like, we want to see it happen. And and Tarantino's like, here it is. I want to give it to you. Yeah, I loved it. (laughs) I was was giddy. (laughs) I thought that was super fun. I mean, the whole movie was fun. The baseball bat scene, 
I love that certain, one. Certain I watched that like four times last night. I watched that. <laughs> on, I found an HD YouTube. Just watched them go at it. <laughs> yeah. Is that, well, it's very majestic, and there are slow motion sequences as well. There are sweeping pans. Um, the, you know, the, the, the frame is just saturated with red, of course. Well, and then it, it's funny because like, as he starts to – it goes from like the, the like music and the close-up of the guy's Oh, you're talking about – I'm sorry. You're talking about the Bear Jew uh, oh, yeah, 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 uh, baseball know. bat scene. Yeah, I, that's I was what thinking I was talking about. Of, I'm, I was thinking of the oh, massacre okay. at the end. Uh, but, yeah. Well, I really like that. I really <laughs> like that, both of those scenes. But the Bear Jew scene is really – I just thought I'm going to go on a little – it was really good because it, it it's 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 there's a lot of music and then it's emotional or whatever and then it cuts and it's there's no noise other than him just screaming and like beating the shit out of the dude's head mm-hmm. and it's just a really good excellent I use like of sound design yeah. yeah also slow motion um, great use of sound design very much a western feel to it a spaghetti western feel to that scene um, I've always in- been interested in that I've you know watched that scene. Uh, somewhat closely and analyzed it closely in slow motion and um, there's an interesting facial expressions from the Verju as yeah. there's almost a, a, a ex- facial expressions of sympathy um, that there is kind of a sacrifice uh, yeah. um, or a killing without sacrificing as I make note of and uh, I've done a little bit I, I think the paper probably doesn't ha- touch upon Giorgio Agamben's homo soccer and do much political no, theory stuff not so I wrote, I wrote another kind of draft of a paper mm. and presented at a conference in San Francisco, a film conference in San Francisco about Giorgio Agamben's Homo Soccer, um, a work of political theory and reading Inglorious Bastards into it. And, and one of the contributions of that work is this idea of the ban, uh, that mm. we that the ban is, is what you, you exist in both. You become killed by the juridical order, but you lie outside of that juridical order. You can be killed but not sacrificed in this sense. And uh, there's interesting elements of the ban in Inglorious Bastards and also the kind of way in which, as Gombin writes, the concentration camp becomes the map of modernity Mm -hmm. and that these concentration camps have have been drawn over our modern world. And in a sense, I I see Inglorious Bastards wade into that a little bit visually and touch upon that stuff in ways that I don't think Tarantino is entirely conscious of. I'm not a big fan of auteur theory anyway. I think that you can look at movies as, you know, uh, a fertile ground. Uh, interpretive ground without necessarily having just the author tell us exactly what they meant. Um, so, um, but yeah, that's a great scene. And and uh, so I, I hope I'm articulating myself oh, well yeah, about yeah. the paper. And I, yeah, I haven't read it in years, but um, but the but I mean, I think that partly the contribution that I was making is sort of hold up Schindler's List and Inglorious Bastards in the sense that Inglorious Bastards is a comment about Schindler's List, but a comment about all the Holocaust movies that come at thereafter. And, and it's it's almost like a movie that is consciously attentive to our obsession with the mm-hmm. Holocaust in mm-hmm. Hollywood cinema, that Hollywood cinema can show us the Holocaust and that we can experience the Holocaust through movies is something that Tarantino, I think, is very much consciously playing with. He's also very much playing with this relationship between good and evil mm-hmm. in the text, right, and flipping that. Uh, the, that polarity around where Schindler's List has a very, very st- a strong, easily discernible uh, polarity between good and evil that's recognizable, that's intelligible, right? And that, that the whole uh, film can be understood through. And Glorious Bastards flips it around almost completely just yeah. to play with you. And there is a kind of very conscious postmodernist kind of uh, wading into derivative and sort of playful irony uh, that uh, just is... Uh, filled at the brim with this movie. I mean, so I, I don't remember specifically when Inglorious Bastards came out. Was it rather controversial? 
No, you know, I really wasn't. I read a lot of reviews. It came out in 2012, I think. The fall of, no, maybe 2011. The fall of 2011 is when it came out. I saw it almost immediately here at the Valley River Center. And uh, and I remember 2009. Oh, 2009. Fall of 2009. Holy cow. August 21st, 2009. I am, I am getting old. This almost 10 <laughs> years ago. Isn't yeah, that amazing? That's yeah. eight years ago. Twenty seventeen. I'm the fact. I'm the resident fact checker. Also, <laughs> thank you very <laughs> so much. Like, yeah, uh, yeah. Fall of two thousand nine. So that was my first year in the PhD program. Um, uh, you know, I remember reading a lot of reviews, and what struck me about the reviews was almost uh, singing the same tune, which was that here Tarantino goes again, and there's no surprise here, yeah. right? I mean, we had no, we knew his. Ooh, so to speak. We know <laughs> what kind of filmmaker he is. And speaking of auteur, there's probably no uh, sharper and, and better example of what an auteur is than Quentin Tarantino. You throw a couple of minutes of a Tarantino movie up on the wall and everyone in the room knows it's a Tarantino movie. Like mm -hmm. there's no mystery of, oh, who directed this? You know, it's, that's a Tarantino <laughs> yeah. movie. Um, about as much as Lynch, I would say. You know, he's a, he's a true auteur. And so I think a lot of the reviews and a lot of the reaction was like, yeah, that's that's a Tarantino movie, and he's doing it with the Holocaust. That's pretty rad. And there was a lot of celebration. There was a lot of, I think there was a lot of conscious, and, and as I mentioned, I think in the paper, I hope hopefully I waded into this idea uh, at the end when the movie screen is being projected and we're watching mm -hmm. a, a, a Nazi massacre on the movie screen. We're watching Nazis laugh at this massacre, mm -hmm. and we are laughing at Nazis being massacred watching a movie of a massacre. And yeah. so there's very much a nested sort of, uh, meta-ness yeah. to the scene. Um, and I think that that really what Tarantino is touching upon, again, is that the movie is making a comment about Hollywood cinema. Mm -hmm. And Tarantino is very conscious of the fact that American audiences and worldwide audiences with their jumbo popcorn are laughing at the Nazis getting massacred. And, um, and while I'm attentive to and I bring make present in the paper a critical engagement with this, that this can be troubling, you probably noticed that a lot of my paper, I don't have a very strong normative, like critical. Yeah. I'm not like eviscerating this. I, I'm not making a claim as to whether or not this is healthy for society or culture or whether or not there's something really insidious and dangerous here, even with Schindler's List, which I, I try to well, point I, out. Yeah, I almost, I almost noticed that like you were more critical of Schindler's List Certainly. than, yeah. than of English Professors. And like I was watching, we watched Schindler's List two days ago, I think it was. Something and, like that. And Every every time I watch it, it's like wow. And I had watched I, two weeks ago. I watched it also just by chance, uh, and I think that's what actually got me wanting to like put this whole this like episode together. Mm -hmm. But um, there's a there's like it's like an it's a three hour movie and it's like two hours of just watching Jews get killed. Like it's a lot. Yeah. If, if Steven Spielberg weren't Jewish, I would have like a problem with it. Yeah. And, and you know, you notice as well, you're right. And the, many of the Jewish characters in the film They're like have dumb. very little distinctiveness to them. Mm -hmm. They're just a mass, a crowd, a faceless crowd, right? Well, there's, there's like the one-armed guy, the factory worker comes in and he, he's like an idiot or something. Isn't he that, hit isn't on that the head. all done intentionally, though? Because to Spielberg's make them very passive. Right, exactly. Yeah. But I'm interested to hear why you would have a problem with it if it wasn't uh, a Jewish person who directed the film. I even think that it's like Steven isn't, Spielberg isn't like story? jerking himself off about like. But he didn't want to direct it, right? Didn't he not want to no. direct it? He, no, he, 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 yeah, yeah, he thought he couldn't. He thought and he, he was trying he to pass it off, and then everyone was like, "You're Jewish. You have to do it because you're Jewish." That's what all the other directors. said. I didn't know that's that's why. That's because they were like, "We can't." 
your paper, Jay. Yeah, uh, and I think the story is a little complicated. On the yeah. one hand, I think uh, Spielberg uh, was a bit reluctant uh, to wade into the topic, uh, but that the, a lot of industry insiders uh, were putting their money where Spielberg was because mm-hmm. he was such a great director, and he was able to take on a big project like this and make it big Hollywood and make it cinematic. I think part of the uh, the one figure that really fits into this narrative and history is Stanley Kubrick. And Stanley mm-hmm. Kubrick spent much of his career uh, researching a Holocaust film. In fact, the Kubrick uh, personal archive is one of the largest privately held archives on the Holocaust in the world. Um, Kubrick famously researched to death every single film topic he ever did. And he spent about 30 years researching the Holocaust mm-hmm. to make a Holocaust film. Uh, he was a figure who, at this time, right in the early 1990s, yeah. he was th- he was actually gearing up. He, this, he was considering this to be his final project, and this is the movie that he wanted to make. And um, there were uh, uh, powerful figures in Hollywood who were well aware of this and were, who were um, pushing Spielberg harder to make the movie because they huh. would have rather Spielberg made it than Kubrick. Kubrick, is really? for all of his greatness, huh. is slow, is yeah. difficult on the yeah. set. Not all of his movies make a tremendous amount of money right away. Um, you know, he, he, he hit it big with 2001 Space Odyssey, and that's pretty phenomenal to think about that movie being a real big box <laughs> yeah. office uh, 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 blockbuster. Um, but yeah, I, can't ima- I can't imagine. But it fits with the time, right? Because this is like <laughs> 1968, so this is like counterculture full-blown. Mm, and yeah. you can imagine at the full-blown fo- flower power moment, 2001 is going to do really well. I suspect it's take acid during the last... 40 minutes of the movie, or <laughs> yeah. however, however yeah. long that last acid trip section lasts. I, I wrote uh, my final paper for your class was in 2001. Oh, nice. How, and how cool. he was difficult yeah. um, <laughs> during it. Uh, so not all of his movies made money, even though 2001 did. Um, you know, Barry Lyndon um, was was not a moneymaker. Um, Full Metal Jacket didn't make the return that people were hoping it would have. Um, and then so ultimately Spielberg ended up making Schindler's List. Kubrick decided well, made to a ton of money, right? made a ton of money. I mean, a huge cultural moment. I think, you know, and I maybe I mentioned this, I think it's one of the biggest cultural moments of the 1990s. It's right up there with OJ. And uh, if, if you recall, the, it was 96 or 97, that NBC had a um, primetime television yeah, we premiere of Schindler's List. We were talking about this the other day. Yeah, it's like the first, it was like the first time they ever aired an uncensored movie on TV. You do mention it in here. Yeah, yeah. first time they ever aired, uh, uncut, a rated R uh, uh, picture uncensored. And in with all the sexual nudity and everything yeah. else. Um, so not just the horrific violent scenes, but but the um, the sexual nudity as well. And that was a big moment for television. This is network TV. Yeah. And this is sort of kind of pre-internet, although, you know, it's cable, so network is still, network is being kind of, you know, flattened by cable a little bit. But it was a huge cultural event. Um, and it was a very memorable moment for television. Uh, Schindler's List was a movie that was just huge. I mean, it was absolutely massive for the time. And, of course, then Kubrick uh, ended up uh, abandoning for the last time uh, his uh, Holocaust uh, film project and decided to make Eyes Wide Shut, which, did, again, didn't make a lot of money yeah. and had mixed reviews. So when Schindler's List came out, it was more controversial than Inglorious Bastards, certainly. Well, that's a tough thing. Uh, that's a tough question to evaluate, and um, I wouldn't necessarily go that far. Um, there was almost universal praise with Schindler's List, um, but it certainly uh, captured the headlines and the public imagination. I think, in some ways, to a much greater degree than Inglorious Bastards, 
And, you know, there's been critical engagement with Schindler's List as the years have passed. Mm -hmm. Some film critics and film scholars have pointed out these things, that uh, that the Jews in Schindler's List are largely a faceless mass and very passive and just victims. to, And it's a very sappy, melodramatic picture at times, and it wades so deeply into um, uh, uh, just a, um, a melodramatic emotional sense of uh, both victimhood and regret. It's summed up in this last uh, last scene with Oscar Schindler where he's like, you know, how many could I have saved with this ring? Yeah. And how many could I have saved with this? And you're just like, oh my God, like this movie is just really, it's just heavy, right? It's yeah. a very, very heavy movie. Well, it's it, like it knew exactly what it was doing. Yeah, it knew exactly yeah. what it was doing. And, and I think the black and white cinematography, another element, mm. that visual element that brings out the stark black and white divide. And yeah. to, just to point out very briefly here, and it, it, to, just to culminate in the, the or finish the whole Kubrick uh, angle here, is that you know obviously the one element that's not black and white in the movie is the is the is the dress. Well, the you red, know, I red. I was watching it. We were watching it two days ago, and I never noticed that the Shabbos candles near the end are also in color. Yeah, good point. Which yeah. I had never yeah. noticed yeah. ever, yeah. and yeah. I, this is like my fourth time watching yeah. it. I think. Well, and then it, it brings it to the present day, where uh, and then and then yeah, Oscar and then Schindler. at the very end, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the so that element of the red dress. I think one of the things that comes out in some of the scenes with with the red dress, and especially when the music is overlaid, is a sense of beauty, a sense of elegance, mm -hmm. and a sense of beauty. And she, and uh, Stanley Kubrick uh, asked the question quite well when he said uh, something to the effect, and I think it's in the paper. I the quote it's was here at the very end. I think Kubrick what? said something like, um, uh, "Schindler's List is about success." The Holocaust was about failure. Yes, Is success and failure. Yep, exactly. Uh, sort of pointing out that, and uh, I guess I'm making a corollary here with beauty. Another question we can ask is, should the Holocaust be made beautiful on a Hollywood movie yeah. screen? And I think that's one of the things that Schindler's List does, is it kind yeah. of makes the Holocaust beautiful, even in a horrific way. It's showing violence. It's showing brutality. But it's also doing it in such a cinematically yeah. aesthetic way hmm. that can we ask, is there something problematic about that? Um, and what does that do about our cultural conceptions of good and evil? So, hmm. but so, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm all wrong. I could have been, that paper could have been uh, so far wrong that here's an alternate argument, all right? I don't necessarily believe this, but I actually thought about this recently because I, I, I just, taught Inglorious Bastards and Homo Soccer Zagomben up at Willamette in, in Salem. I uh, was teaching a class on political theory in the cinema, and, and we finished up with a unit on Inglorious Bastards. And it only occurred to me now, with the rise of the alt-right, with the neo-Nazis in America, loud and proud again, and the Ku Klux Klan, et cetera, et cetera, um, perhaps an argument could be made and again, I'm always interested in how Hollywood movies shape politics and produce politics and influence politics, not reflect, right? Did Inglorious Bastards in some ways lay some cultural ground? Hmm. Somewhat how maybe the Dark Knight series laid some cultural ground, created a kind of environment conducive toward the rise of somebody like Donald Trump as president with the Dark Knight series and toward the rise of a kind of alternate right in which... Um, you know, late stage identity politics is going to have these right wing reactions to them. And then suddenly we get identity politics on the right, on the far right. And they're like, why can't I be proud of being white and et cetera, et cetera. Did, did I found a Daily Stormer article today. I was just doing some Googling. I found a Daily Stormer article about how 
um, about that. Really? About uh, Inglorious Bastards. Inglorious Bastards. You, uh, I think well they were I think they were like complaining about it. It's like uh, oh, okay. it's painting Jews as the victim yeah. or as the victims. And I'm like it's not. It's the opposite it's the of opposite, what the movie's yeah. actually doing. <laughs> he was like but the white the white victims or I don't yeah. know whatever. Hmm. Well, I, so I, I you know they're dumb. I, I <laughs> haven't I haven't analyzed this question to yeah. with any great depth and clarity. Um, but I think it's a it's an interesting starting point. It's an intriguing mm. question to ask. To what extent are these types of Hollywood movies creating certain environments that are conducive to political and social movements that we see cropping up uh, thereafter. I I recall, and I I, I, I don't mean to offend any Donald Trump supporters by equating Inglorious Bastards and neo-Nazis with what what I meant with that example was the Dark Knight series. And and the one thing that- How did the Dark Knight series do that? I don't- well, w- did you guys notice on social media at all? What, like the at the in, on, during the inauguration, the Donald Trump inauguration, almost immediately, what came up was uh, that character and the um, uh, the second Dark Knight uh, with the mask and his speech to Gotham City was almost identical oh, right, to right. Donald Trump's yeah. speech. And oh, Bane, yeah, yeah. Bane's speech was yeah. Trump stole Bane's speech or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was the first time it came up in my mind, like. Yeah, you know, because I'm I'm I, I look out for these things. I'm yeah. a social scientist, and I'm looking at how movies shape politics, yeah. right? And I mean, mm-hmm. Christopher Nolan has like a fairly reactionary bent in a lot of his work, anyway. Well, The Dark Knight's yeah. about yeah. is like a really pro-Bush movie, isn't it? Mm. Oh, that's one way people read what it. Was, I think it's what was the um, I can't remember the name of the Tarantino movie um, that like the more recent one about uh, slavery. Django Unchained. Yeah, Django. Mm. So Django would have had sort of the same effect, exactly. Yeah. Um, as mm. and maybe more so actually, perhaps than inglorious bastards yeah. on shaping where we're at now yeah 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 i think so i mean i i think both of these movies is this not like a kind of um one might make the argument that tarantino is sort of trolling the alt-right with <laughs> these films in huh. a way um or well i thought you were originally saying the opposite and he's sort of um instigating them uh, well, the trolls can or the same way. I yeah, the same productive thing. and instigating. I think is is the point that I was making. I Perhaps I, I don't know. I mean, I think that yeah. this is we can we can speculate a little bit, but again, because I'm a because I'm a, a social sciencey sort of person, I look for evidence and I look for the first thing I want to ask are really good research questions, really good starting point questions, mm-hmm. and then develop uh, figure out a way to measure differentiation and change and measure variables and effects and to see if I can actually prove anything. But it is interesting to um, to think about these, and this is really hard to do with culture. It's really hard to show how culture produces politics. Um, but it's interesting to, to think about, and I, th- and I think that there an argument could be made, um, both with Django Unchained and with Inglorious Bastards, that um, that th- this has created a kind of environment that's been very conducive to the rise of the alter- al- hmm. alt right. One thing I think that safely can be said about the rise of the alt right in American politics today is that it is explicitly reactionary. It mm-hmm. is explicitly a reaction, right? Um, it is reactive to uh, what they see as identity politics yeah. run amok and political correctness run amok. Um, and so, so, and I think that. Very much c- part of this argument is is the antagonistic relationship between the alt right and the sort of cultural mainstream, mm-hmm. if you will, the sort of the keepers of the gates of what is acceptable culture. Like and the Hollywood liberals, right? Exactly, <laughs> Hollywood liberals. And that's what Tommy Lahren can't 
can't stop talking about. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, you know, it's I think it's no coincidence that some of the major alt-right figures are products of Southern California. Steve mm-hmm. Bannon, um, who made a lot of money in Hollywood. Um, Stephen Miller, Seinfeld. who went to Beverly Hills High, right? Yeah, he's, he owns some of the rights to Seinfeld. Yeah, Bannon produced- off Seinfeld. He also, also, there's a great Seinfeld episode about Schindler's List. <laughs> Wait, oh, okay. wait, Bannon does? He makes money off Seinfeld? Yeah, he owns yeah, some of the yeah, rights. Yeah, yeah he oh, owns oh, a really? percentage of the rights. Oh, yeah. that's there's wild. an episode of Seinfeld where Jerry and his girlfriend make out during Schindler's List and everyone <laughs> shames him for it for like a half hour. It's the funniest thing in the world. Wait, that was yeah. mentioned in, in your paper, I think, wasn't it? Was it? The uh, Seinfeld uh, Maybe not. Maybe I was reading something I else. I think so. I can't remember. <laughs> Did you read the wrong paper? No, I just I was reading some <laughs> other stuff after the fact, though. Yeah. Um, because I know what I was reading, I think, was that... Um, um, Okay, it was like, um, never mind, never mind. I'm getting it complicated <laughs> in my mind. Are you? I don't want to misspeak and, and say something that wasn't the, actually the case. I'll have one. You never. You had a question earlier. You didn't weren't you? Talking not like very well formulated. Well, so I guess like I also noted like a lack of sort of normative um, criticism really of Inglorious Bastards. So I was wondering if you do have any further thoughts of it because I do think I agree with the general thesis of the paper and as much as like yeah it is flipping this trope and doing mm-hmm. a self-reflective moment. But other than sort of what we just discussed about potentially lending itself towards the all right, do you think does that succeed in a self-reflexive moment for us that you think the audience gets a critical moment about the genre or I don't know. I think so. I think I I think I imply as much in the article and I mm-hmm. think I still do believe that. I think that in other words to, maybe to put it more crudely, I think yeah. that Inglorious Bastards is more politically productive than Schindler's okay. List. And that it does allow for hmm. a kind of reflexive self-evaluation mm-hmm. of 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 uh, our relationship between visuality and politics and what we expect out of something like a Hollywood movie hmm. industry when they do something uh, uh, like the Holocaust when they when they present and represent our historical memory of the Holocaust. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I think so. I say this not actually from, I'm not a huge fan of Tarantino, I must really? say. He's not one of my favorite directors. And um, I don't fall head over heels over, over his movies. I did think Inglorious Bastards was really quite well done. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the things I enjoyed more, most about it was how meta-cinematic it was, mm-hmm. that it was a movie about movies. It just couldn't help but talk about movies all the time. And me as a big movie buff, I like it when movies talk about movies. I like it when there are movies inside of movies. It's <laughs> one of my favorite things that happens in a movie is when someone's watching a classic movie in a movie. Would um, you like Clerks? They say Clerks is like one of the first movies to like me- to make a joke about another movie in a movie. Um, well, I w- I, I'm not necessarily sure that the, the case historically. I think that the, that even in the silent era, they were making jokes about other movies. Or but like but like explicitly when they make like the Star Wars Lord of the Rings jokes. Yeah. That like that hadn't really been done before, where yeah. it was like really intertextual in like that way, where yeah. it was like bringing yeah. up like yeah. a Back to the Future or yeah. whatever. Yeah, it 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 might have been the first. It might not, but it was it was certainly well done, and it was uh, and it was uh, enjoyable, you know. And uh, yeah. as I'm not a huge fan of the uh, Star Wars franchise, I gotta say. Oh, I, I know. <laughs> yeah, you've told me. Oh, did I say? Yeah, yeah. I should I should more accurately say that I absolutely despise the Star Wars <laughs> franchise. Yeah, uh, that was the other half of my paper. I hate was... them with a great passion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, terrible movies. Well, <laughs> let's not get into it right now. <laughs> uh, so is is the idea that. Okay, it's it's funny because I think Django Unchained got more like political social criticism than Inglorious Bastards mm. because people it, hate or, black people more than Jews. Well, and it's dealing with the history that the nation Inge- itself I'm not saying that that's okay. tied to. You know what I mean? There's also like that's American history being retold and re again in its own way subverted. So there's a proximity yeah. issue. Yeah, oh. yeah. I guess there is a proximity issue, but 
the Holocaust was less time ago. So there's a proximity sure, issue sure. of relevance yeah. for, for time. So I don't know. I, just, I, I don't just... think we feel a moral culpability for the Holocaust. Mm. And I think that that's yep. the difference is that Django plays with yeah, America's moral true. culpability it's itself, right? Mm -hmm. And so that has a different sort of affective dimension that it evokes. Well, do you think Django's like kind of similar to Inglorious Bastards in that way of not, not, not about movies or whatever, but I mean, Django is people are only, you only see like bad slavery stuff like a few times and most of the other time it's like Django killing white people. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's, right. Yeah. I mean, that, and that's like the same as in, in uh, Inglorious Bastards where there's like, uh, Christoph Waltz kills some Jews at the beginning and then there's none of that for the rest. Yeah. And it's just Jewish people killing the Germans. Yeah, I certainly think so. I think there's certainly an affinity between the two movies and consciously done mm -hmm. and, um, and quite well done actually. I think the movies play upon each other quite well in the sense that well, they're Christoph doing Waltz similar is things. Both. Yeah. But just to touch on the point that you made, which I think is a really important one, that that um, that the American collective or cultural public do not sh have do not share a lot of culpability for the crimes mm -hmm. of the Holocaust, and therefore, a movie like Django Unchained might hit a little bit harder or mm -hmm. hit a nerve a little bit more deeply. In a sense, going back to the Holocaust, I mean, we see this play out all over the world um, with every culture except for German culture, I think. And I've lived for many years in, in Europe, in Hungary. Uh, and Hungary is a country that absolutely decimated their Jewish population. Yeah. And the Hungarian authorities were fully complicit, and not just not just during the Aerocross Ferencsadosi mm -hmm. regime, but before in the Horthy regime as well the Hungarians were very much complicit in the uh, decimation of Hungarian Jewry. And to this day, there's always this distancing of, that's not yeah. us, that was the Germans. The Germans did the Holocaust. That would, the Hungarians didn't do that. And the French as well, Marine yeah. Le Pen making a note of this in yeah. the presidential election uh, when she, she made that comment that um, a, a rounding up of French Jews was not committed by French authorities, Vichy authorities. It was committed by the Germans, and it touched a certain raw cultural nerve. It's still with us. This hasn't really gone away, this idea of culpability with mm -hmm. the Holocaust. It's, it's a really sensitive issue. And for those who are familiar with the German cultural uh, memory of the Holocaust, I mean, there is probably, there are fewer, uh, stronger examples of a uh, of a very pronounced mm. sense of of carrying guilt carrying yeah. cultural guilt when you talk to germans about the holocaust or you if, if anyone's ever been to the holocaust museum in berlin w one of the most fantastic museums i've ever been to in my life um, you get an overwhelming sense that they carry the responsibility mm. and the guilt and even to this day and i think a lot of that still hasn't eroded in the german collective con consciousness at the same time that everyone around Germany is like, it's all your, we didn't do it. Poland, yeah. we didn't do this. That wasn't us. Hungary, that wasn't us. France. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's really interesting. And I think actually Tarantino um, also plays upon that. Um, this movie was filmed in Berlin mm -hmm. at the famed Ufa Studios, right? And so to have a movie theater on an Ufa studio set, the Ufa German film studios, you know, um, uh, the Hollywood of German film and cinema, um, to build and construct a, uh, a movie theater set, put the German high command mm -hmm. with Adolf Hitler in it, and film their massacre in outside of Berlin at the Ufa Studios. Says a lot about culture today. Says a yeah. lot about our cultural memory of the Holocaust. It says a lot about film. It says a lot about Hollywood movies. And it says a lot about how politics is shaped out of our cultural memories what kind of politics we produce out of our cultural memories. Um, and so 
yeah, in that in that sense, I think it's a much more memorable picture in some ways than Schindler's List, where Schindler's List is sort of unremarkable in so many profoundly political ways. Maybe not unremarkable in the sense of the context in which this movie comes out. Maybe not unremarkable in the sense of its aesthetics, and it's still quite a beautiful and elegant movie in some ways, and the performances are pretty astounding. Um, but there is an unremarkableness to its political message and meaning. Just the Holocaust is bad. The Holocaust is really bad, and the Nazis are animals and animalistic others. Yeah. And, and uh, importantly, you couldn't see yourself in their position with complicity yeah. in the first place. Exactly, like, yeah. exactly. And I think maybe to see, to see ourselves in the other, and I think this is where, to, not to go too philosophical here, but mm -hmm. I think Hegel has it right, mm -hmm. uh, that you know, to see ourselves in the other. Um, right and is 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 the crucial path toward hmm. um, toward truth and justice in our world um, so that we have to we have to remind ourselves that um, the the uh, Nazi um, uh, perpetuation of the Holocaust was a human endeavor that's something that human yeah. beings did to other human beings um, and uh, and I think that at the end of the day, I think that that kind of um, engagement with the other um, helps lessen the possibility of genocides in the yeah. future. Um, that we see these things as human things, so that we are f carry more responsibility um, for yeah. for yeah. our human communities. You know, I was I was talking to some. There's a there's like there's a lot of neo Nazis in Eugene here, yeah, yeah. Uh, where we're recording, and I was talking to someone the other day who was like. Man, how are like how are people Nazis? Like that's crazy. Like, I mean, essentially, I'm, I'm not saying it well, <laughs> but essentially, it's like, oh, how could anyone ever be a Nazi? Like, I didn't think that that was even real. It's like, well, there were mil there, were, you know, a whole country was yeah. like a Nazi country for like yeah. a while. <laughs> that, yeah. A lot of people were Nazis a while ago, and it's not so much of a stretch that there's some now. So I think it's that's what I had written down here was <laughs> that um, Schindler's List that the inhumanity of Nazi evil abstracted the idea mm -hmm. that it's possible to have happened or happen again, mm -hmm. which is, mm -hmm. I yeah. took some notes and I ended up only mm -hmm. taking one note. That was my <laughs> only note, but. And the consequences of that are potentially dire. The yeah. consequences of that are that, that if that, if that we have a very shared and strong collective imagination of how could it even be possible? Yeah. Then it allows for, uh, a, a neo-Nazi movement to develop underneath the wings, mm -hmm. to develop develop under in a community in an in, in, a, in an environment that that most people regard as very lefty liberal, you know, like Eugene, um, but also very white, also very white, yeah. and and I think it I think a, a a lot of people are are surprised at the extent to which um, the 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 deeply embedded racism of Oregon's political past is still here in the yeah. present. Um, I wrote an article for uh, an organization called The Public Eye on Anti-Semitism in Eugene and did a little bit of investigative work and background work here in Eugene. And it's amazing once you start scratching on mm. the surface uh, how very much these things are still Well, so I, still I work at the shul here. I mm -hmm. teach Hebrew, actually, and there was um, ev every Jew, every member of the temple is just a faculty member or a student. Mm -hmm. So there's no, I mean, there's no, like, there's very few, like, native Eugene Jewish people people mm -hmm. and then um but there's also this like long history of uh they're in a new building but um the last building they were in got like shot up hmm. there was like and no one was there it was like at night but there they were like bullet holes in the walls and in one of the pane glass windows that they actually moved into the new building 
um, and uh, when I think that after Donald Trump got elected, we all sat the kids down and talked to them about like the anti-Semitic past of whatever, blah blah, because Trump had said some some shit, hmm. and then that's not even the other shit he said after. Uh, but yeah, anyways, I thought that was just some context of Eugene. Yeah, so yeah, um, yeah, it's um, it's a troubling moment, you know, and um, and it's a crucial moment as well. I mean, someone mentioned to me recently, uh, it's probably a good time to leave uh, the states, uh, you know, mm-hmm. and I've, I've lived many years in Europe and have some ways out, and I said, uh, well, you know, I guess, but you know, another way of looking at it is this is more important now than ever. Now, now mm-hmm. is the time more than ever to stay. And um, to stand up and and um, and uh, and, you know, I, I, I guess I am in some ways uh, I'm just a, 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 a sort of classic liberal, a modern, a classic modern liberal, <laughs> if that makes any sense, in the sense that I do think free speech is a, is a valuable, um, a valuable uh, and important virtue of society. Uh, and I think that transparency is an important virtue of society. And I think that. Uh, verit- uh, uh, venerable liberal norms um, are really under attack and being undermined in our, our political culture and society today. Everyone seems to be jumping the liberal ship nowadays. I mean, they're, the left has always been, the hard left has always been super critical of liberalism. And, you know, the further left you get, the more, like, you know, the leftists believe that the liberals are the real enemies, right? They're the accommodationists, <laughs> you know. Everyone's at me in the <laughs> um, There's always what? been that. But that's, I think, grown. <laughs> it's grown remarkably large. And I think that part of the Bernie thing was an opening for l- the left to create a fissure with liberals within liberalism so that, that and there's, a, there's a significant overlap. And there still is an overlap between leftism and liberalism, but it's moving a little further apart. And I say this as a Bernie supporter, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. But... But I'm really I'm a liberal, and in some ways I'm kind of like excited that everyone's jumping the liberal ship because I'm like, <laughs> okay, yeah, see you later. I'll be over here uh, when you guys come <laughs> back around in 20 years, and the world's going to shit, you know. And and in 20 or 30 years, people are going to be like, yeah, liberalism, not bad, not a bad thing. Uh, look where we are today, you know. And uh, and I think it's actually something that will be hopefully, uh, and I encourage. I I think a lot about this in my politics. Something that will be embraced by conservatives again so that we can have conservative liberals the way that we used to it was only like really literally like the late 70s we had conservative lots of conservative liberals Hmm. and classical liberalism Lockean property liberalism closer to libertarianism is of course you know the foundational roots of liberalism Um, so to have conservatives come back around would be quite nice Uh, and um, and so but yeah I mean it's I think it's fascinating and and, and, you know, maybe to bring her back around a little bit to Inglorious Bastards, you know, I, I think that what we've seen is perhaps some evidence that the conclusions that I make in that article that I wrote in 2012 or whatever are wrong. Hmm. And, that, and that these things have not allowed us to have conversations, public-private public conversations. They're private economic commodities, these Hollywood movies, but they're shared in public spaces and we have conversations about them um, that haven't led to... Um, a, a political culture um, that still prizes and values um, norms uh, and uh, and and virtues that are worth preserving in a liberal democratic society, uh, and uh, and I think that yeah, the rise of illiberalism is perhaps an example, is perhaps a sign that that. But then you have to make the claim that you have to make the connection. You know, are movies like Inglorious Bastards really, mm. you know, encouraging and creating that kind of 
cultural environment, and that's hard to do. We can do little but speculate here. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting to think about. So, <coughs> like at the beginning of the conversation, you were talking about how uh, depictions of Adolf Hitler are more frequent now um, post Inglorious Bastards. Um, or post Schindler List. Or, po- or post Schindler List. And, and, and then maybe more so post Inglorious Bastards. I don't know. I haven't I looked at the research, but it'd be interesting to go back and look at it. Well, well we I haven't like seen. Have there been many like Holocaust movies? Well, no. I, w- I was just going to bring up that with the Trump campaign, there was the frequent comparison of Hitler and Trump. Yeah. And what you thought of that, maybe. Yeah. Because it sort of ties it all together a little bit to kind of go full circle because we we're talking about Trump and then we're also talking about. Because uh, is that healthy for society or not? Because there was yeah. a lot of people who were saying, like, oh, this isn't a healthy comparison to be making. And there was a lot of people who were like, no, we definitely need this. Is We should be making this comparison for this. So it'd be interesting to have your take. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think one should proceed with a great deal of caution, clarity, and detail if they want to make connections between fascism as a political movement and what we've seen with the rise of Donald Trump. Um, and even one should be, I think, even more cautious to make the conclusion that Donald Trump is like a rise of a Hitler in America sort of figure. Um, I am skeptical. Do, do you of not claim. think he's a fascist? Uh, Donald Trump is a fascist? Uh, you know, I guess you're putting me on the spot. Have <laughs> I really ever answered this question before? He's certainly a populist. Mm-hmm. And um, of the populist variety, uh, he's of well, let me put it this way. I, I think that David Brooks is right in that the paradigms of American politics are shifting away from big government versus small government and toward open versus closed. Um, that one side of the divide is an open, uh, lessening of borders or open borders, uh, free trade, liberal capitalist, um, open in terms of transparency and democracy versus closed, uh, closed borders, um, ethno-nationalistic states, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and protectionist economic policies that may go along with that. But we certainly haven't seen any of those protectionist economic policies in the Trump administration Mm -hmm. so far. I mean, if one thing has been left by the wayside, the difference between the campaigning Trump and the governing Trump, it's the populism. The populism has been put to the side so the Goldman Sachs administration Mm -hmm. can develop. And the tax plan, the Obamacare repeal and replay, everything we've seen have been pretty standard by the book conservative yeah. politics sort of stuff. And the foreign policy, too, I mean, is swinging towards neoconservatism again in its own yeah. sort of distinct way. The isolationism has gone, like, yeah. certainly. Yeah, exactly. So, so uh, you know, and so t- to that point, I would say no. I, mean, I would say that Donald Trump has uh, campaigned like a much more dangerous or destabilizing, if you will, mm-hmm. anti-establishment populist and has governed like a very incompetent, uh, <laughs> uneducated uh, conservative um, and uh, profoundly incompetent, I would say, in my in mm-hmm. my evaluation and estimation. I mean, I, I think it's remarkable to the extent to which Donald Trump has no idea what he's doing. I think that one one prized lesson perhaps to come out of the Donald Trump administration, hopefully, is that we can do away with this absurd fiction that government ought to be run like a business or that you need business people <laughs> yeah. to run government. These are two hmm. very, very different things. That's what like, my dad says, like, anyone who's not a politician. Like, yeah, as exactly. As long as it's not a politician, Super I'm dangerous. fine with them being Super present. Dangerous. It's like, are you fucking high? And, but <laughs> it's not to say that we all love politicians, of course. I yeah. mean, politicians, so easy to hate, right? Um, but part of the reason why we hate them is the... Is the um, 
is the idiosyncra- idiosyncrasies of the job mm-hmm. uh, of being a public servant. Um, you know, you can't pressure people like Donald Trump. Yeah. I, li- I honestly think that he didn't really realize that that it was again that there was that he was obstructing justice, right? Which mm-hmm. could ultimately be his downfall here: obstruction yeah. of justice. Um, those comments are really, really damaging if they can be proved that he made those comments in the Oval Office to Kislyak and um, mm-hmm. Lavrov. Uh, that, you know, I got rid of that nut job Comey and uh, the heat is off, you know, that is illegal and obstruction of justice and that you can get impeached for that. I think that you can do that as a a private business person uh, easily. That's not against the law. It's Mm -hmm. it's called pressuring. It's called leverage. It's called (laughs) negotiating, right? And he's just taking his norms from the business world and operating similarly in government and he's finding out that that's actually grounds for impeachment in some cases. And so, yes, it is super dangerous to assume that just because you are outside of politics, you should be able to run politics. It's like hiring yeah. a CEO for Ford Motor Company who doesn't believe in cars and is against cars. It just doesn't make any sense. And I hopefully that's one fiction that we can do away with. I do think that we need to, and I'll, I'll say this too, I mean, I often teach my students to, to not be so cynical about politics and to push back against the cynicism of politics on both the left and the right. And to see political decision making by political actors as as more carefully calibrated and ones that are often decisions that they really truly believe in. I use often George W. Bush going to Iraq war as an example of this, um, that the cynics answer is that we just went to war for oil. Right. And to ingratiate oil interests. But but the the non cynical answer, which I think is closer to the truth, is to assume that George W. Bush believed in what he was doing and thought it was the right decision to make. And now you have to explain the process and it becomes more complicated and it, it, it's a more complicated answer, but I think it's closer to the truth. And I think that answer is partly that the Bush administration needed to send a message to the Arab world and mm-hmm. Afghanistan is not the Arab world, right? They needed to go into the biggest, baddest neighborhood in the Arab world and set up shop with the American military and fight this battle, yeah. this war on terrorism there. Um, and so that was, I think, part of the reason why. And so, I mean, it's important for us to not be cynical. And, you know, I guess the point that I was trying to make about that was uh, that, uh, that, um, that uh, there's always going to be a conservatism in American politics. There's always going to be a kind of left liberalism, right? And the question is, what do we want it to be? What do we want it to look like in the future? And I've often encouraged my students to ask themselves, if you're a conservative, If you're a Republican conservative, ask yourself the question, what kind of liberalism do you want for America, right? Not what you think is going to be the most strategically advantageous for you to win election after election, like what's the weakest. No, what's the best for the country, right? And if you're a liberal and a lefty, to ask the same question but in reverse, what kind of conservatism do you want to see in American politics, right? I think that's a really good question to ask. Of course, there are assumptions with that question. One assumption is that there's always going to be a left and the right, right? Um, Another assumption perhaps implied there is that it's good for there to be a left (laughs) and the right. It's good to have a conservative uh, balance to the left. It's good to have a right and left, and that those things are um, perhaps not like essential and organic or natural or something, but solid, you know, entrenched yeah. ide- ideological divide, if you will, of politics. So. I think that, unfortunately, um, Trump's administration perhaps 
perhaps if he's impeached, it will um, do away with the, the fiction that political outsiders are, are necessary. But I think that there's uh, I don't think he's going to be impeached. Um, in fact, I think it's more likely that he's reelected than impeached. Um, and so I don't think it'll. There's no way. I don't know. I'm well, I'm, regardless, I'm a, predictions I'm, aside, okay. I'm, ju- I'm just saying I don't. I, th- I think yeah. there's always going to be an appeal to like for outsiders. Um, maybe not. Maybe it'll it'll do mm-hmm. with the fiction of like a bit. It needs to be run like a business, and we need businessmen. But there's always going to be a we don't need politicians kind of thing. And I think because that was the appeal in Bernie, also despite he, that the fact yep, that he yep. is very much a, sort of a career politician. Um, that the outsiders always have sort of a more extreme position, and the voters and the constituency always prefers a more extreme version, I think, than what politicians are actually going to campaign on, I guess. So, or maybe an outsider one more specifically than an extreme. And I think that point right, is a really yeah, good sure. one. That's an excellent point. And I think that there is something even peculiar about American politics in this regard that there's a long and venerable tradition of an antipathy toward politics and politicians in American. Mm-hmm. American culture and American history. We always hate the tax man. Yeah. <laughs> um, Frederick Jackson Turner believed that it was the frontier which this was bred, this antipathy toward government and centralized political authority yeah. was the fact that we were a frontier developing nation and the westward expansion contributed to this. Um, you know, and I think that there's something to be said about that. And I think to wade normatively here just briefly, um, and hopefully I'm not too frustrating in the, that I often push back against normative things. But, <laughs> but I think uh, ultimately I think that's good. I think it's good for democracy, for a political culture to want outsiders, to want fresh blood, um, to rejuvenate a political system. I think that's partly why we have uh, political orders, so to speak, or party systems. You know, they run their course and then they exhaust themselves. And then you need to flush the system just like you need to flush an engine. And it's good to bring in outside blood into a political system just not trump of course well no i i i no i don't think so i mean i think you know trump has every right to jump in the game and actually he's had he's waited tentatively in the game for quite some time for longer than what people imagine yeah. they think he just popped onto the scene he kind of waited for running for president in 88 i think wasn't he um and you know more power to him for wanting to run I just lament the fact that he won and that there were so <laughs> yeah. many Americans yeah. who voted for him. It seems like it seems like him winning was sort of an over it was like a boiling point of um, people wanting an outsider and wanting an outsider and Obama was kind of supposed to be like a political outsider. His ideas were supposed to be like a little more um, certainly not incumbent Obama but like uh, in 2000 well, he was actually only like a, he was only like a two-term senator, right? Or yeah, one right. term. So yeah, he was, term, but then he yeah. sort of got in office and he was less of an outsider than what people wanted. And like Bush was supposed to be an outsider too. Like they were all sort of supposed to be an outsider, right? Maybe all the way up until, I don't know when the last time a real like not politician was elected until now Trump. Yeah. So it was kind of just Reagan? Like, and, and then Bernie got cheated out of it, right? He was no, governor right, of California. Well, yeah. So then after Bernie got cheated out of it, because I think there was a lot of Bernie people who did end up voting for Trump. Yeah, and it's it's perhaps it's it's more overlooked, but it's definitely often overlooked as sort of like just a pissed off like, well, if they cheated him out, like a totally not genuine vote, but like a we're just gonna maybe it was like a screw the system sort of vote, or maybe it was like a we just need the outsider vote, or I don't know what it was, but it was like the anti-establishment kind of vote, sort of I guess. I'm a little skeptical that a lot of Bernie supporters. I mean, I think that. It comes down to Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, mm-hmm. and uh, the vote difference there is minuscule. Wait, um, why, why not Florida also? Well, uh, Trump could have won Florida, North Carolina, Virginia, Ohio, and New Hampshire, and Clinton, all she had to do was win Nevada, and I think she still would have squeaked out a win. 
if you do the if you do sure. the electoral politics map. That was my estimation during election night. Hmm. I was uh, obviously of everyone in the universe thought Hillary <laughs> yeah. Clinton was going to win, <laughs> yeah. and and that was part of my reasoning was like I did the electoral map and I was yeah. like she could lose every single swing state except for Nevada. And I knew she was going to win Nevada because there was a surge in uh, registration, new registration yeah. of voters. And I just kind of knew Nevada's changing a lot and, and Nevada's not really Trump country. Uh, and uh, I was like, you know, th th she could lose all those swing states and still win Nevada and she'd still squeak out a win. So there's no chance. Nobody was looking at Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Nobody. No one was even had them in play. Well, have you seen those, those uh, like voter registration numbers in um – Wisconsin that like 200,000 people were denied yes like yes. voter registration yeah the gerrymandering and they won by like 26,000 there yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah and and there and there is there is real evidence to suggest that Wisconsin Republicans spent a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of effort not only redistricting the state yeah. to make it much more solidly Republican and what is really truly a swing state they've made it solidly Republican through gerrymandering and redistricting they also went about systematically dismantling certain voter rights and uh, and uh, and ease of voter registration. Um, similar ha similar thing happened in Michigan as well. Mm -hmm. And you, you pair that with less enthusiasm among black voters for Hillary Clinton as opposed to Barack Obama. And, you know, that makes perfect sense. Of course, they're not going to be as enthusiastic <laughs> for Hillary Clinton as they are for Barack Obama. That makes sense. You pair those two things together. I mean, Clinton lost Wisconsin by, what, 17, 18,000 votes, and she got 38 fewer 38,000 fewer votes in mm -hmm. Milwaukee than Barack Obama did <laughs> in 2008 and 2012. You know, and a similar story in Michigan with Detroit, right? So not blaming black voters. I mean, that makes sense. But that factored into these restrictions around voting rights made it possible. Well, and the VRA was repealed, what, like two, two three years ago? Yeah. yeah okay, so so ba going back to the Bernie thing, I think maybe there's not quite – so many Bernie supporters who flipped and supported Trump. Maybe there's th there's not many who supported Trump. There's some who voted for Trump, but there's a lot who just didn't vote after Bernie got cheated. And I mean, I mean, Trump Trump's um like outsiderness to politics couldn't have played better up against anyone but Hillary Clinton, who is definitely <laughs> the most insider of a politician. So it really became not even a Democrat versus Republican. It was a little bit of what you're talking about, sort of the, the nationalism versus globalism kind of thing. Yeah. But it was more, I think, of just establishment versus anti-establishment. Yeah. It was like, do you support the establishment or do you support the most anti-establishment guy who's kind of extreme and like a little like crazy, but... Yeah. Or or the lady who's super well manicured and like yeah. so, so yeah. it was like very much insane. But I don't know. I mean, Henry, do you really think he's going to be impeached? I think no, I, I I mean well, like I don't know about that. I don't think he's not going to get reelected. I don't. I don't if think he he's going to survive not the summer. If he's not <laughs> impeached, I think he will be reelected. Well, I was talking to Ali the other day. I think he's going to be impeached by twenty nineteen. Yeah, I think he'll be impeached too. Um, just, but a Republican it, it could only be it could only the be day. the Russia stuff at this point it could only be the obstruction of justice Russia stuff I mean it's you don't all think it's he's one think the obstruction of justice is more than enough to impeach him it is it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it, yeah but it's just this one thing that he has to overcome and I think it's after, a big one though after, it's yeah a big it's a one, pretty but <laughs> after this the Republicans the establishment has you don't think he's gonna do more like, like look it looks like they already took his phone away because he hasn't really been tweeting at all <laughs> like since this came out they literally took his phone away I think maybe it's because he's abroad but like he's not doing the insane tweets as much anymore uh, and like I don't know. We'll find out. I mean, <laughs> I think that the I think that the Republican Party, not Donald Trump, but the Republican Party, are really backed themselves into a corner, yeah. and they are in some deep, 
deep yeah. trouble. Now, the Obamacare repeal and replace law is a good example of how deeply in trouble they are. They're actually, they've lined up for a bill that's going to throw like 20 million people yeah. off of health care. <laughs> this is not good. This is not a political win. Yeah. But, and they're forced to do it. Right. They're doing something was one commenter in uh, Washington said I'd never seen political political suicide on this scale before. <laughs> like true, it was though. really so that why, they had. Why are they not lining up to impeach Trump? And put well, Pence but, in but I don't think so. Why are they not? But, I don't understand why so they're not more. It's not lining it. up. But I mean, Paul Ryan, who doesn't like Trump, has already expressed sympathy towards further investigations. And Paul Ryan's a big but barely deal, dude. Yeah, but but he barely. Well, but barely is a lot. Post in election, post election, everyone said there was going to be a strong <laughs> anti-Trump Republican caucus. And there's going to be like a strong, and it was supposed to be, McCain was supposed to be ahead, ahead of it, right? Where it was like well, a bunch of Republicans no who were pissed off and they were like, we will not stand this or whatever. But then like, remember, because like Ted Cruz wouldn't even endorse him or anything. And then like a few months sure. later, yeah. everyone, yeah. the Republicans have kind of well, gotten right. behind well, it's right. politically smart we'll to find fall out. in line. His, yeah. But his when odds, there's a fracture line, which it looks like there's about to be, and you already have enemies in the party, that doesn't help. It was like the Freedom right. Caucus wouldn't like vote for on the, the bill on healthcare, actually. I think I think we all agree that he won't be impeached by the Democrats. He will only be impeached by the Republicans. Sure. And, and I, I think there's a lot of Republicans who'd be happy to I don't do know. it. I don't see the enthusiasm. <laughs> yeah. There was, I, I mean, I don't know. A Republican has enthusiasm about impeaching their own president, but it doesn't mean they're not going to do it and see it as politically useful to push back against a popular swing of the party who's been hurting moderate Republicans for a while. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that we have not seen in this Trump administration, so I mm. wouldn't I wouldn't rule out. It is certainly the idea, you know, Andrew Johnson, uh, you know, Nixon and uh, Clinton were all impeached by the other party in Congress. Mm. Um, that would be a first for Republicans but to impeach But also, n- none of them own. were truly removed from office, right? Uh, with the exception of no, Nixon none of was going to be. Yeah, probably. well, he, but then, or was he going to be? I don't know, because he resigned. Which is maybe the more likely case with Trump is that he actually might, even though I don't says think his ego is far too big to resign. <laughs> I think it would maybe get to a point where he resigns in like a very prideful way where he's just like, can't handle the witch hunt. <laughs> Largest witch hunt. Can't handle it. Kind of thing. <laughs> so he's like, I'm out of here. If they don't want me, they can't have me. Like that kind of resignation. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. So let's wind down. Let's go around. I didn't do like a little intro question. <laughs> Usually, I'm not going to do the usual one, (laughs) but uh, what did Ali? What did you think about the movie Boyhood? I haven't seen Boyhood. Okay. (laughs) Well, Jay, you're the you're the expert. Well, Tom, what did you think about the movie Boyhood? Um, I thought it was uh, not. uh, I thought it was over celebrated. Right? Didn't most people at the end after like the (laughs) the initial excitement of it like wore off? Everyone was kind of like so. That wasn't like really groundbreaking. Like maybe <laughs> in like an experimental way, it was like very neat how much effort it took. But other than that, like it was neat. That's a great word. It was. It was <laughs> like. Isn't that, isn't it was, that what the huh. conclusion was? <laughs> after like after like a year, everyone was just like, okay, well, it was like. It well, I thought that after two minutes of the movie <laughs> being on. Yeah, Jay, like, what did you think about the movie Boyhood? Did you like? Well, I thought it was a a poor Holocaust film for sure, <laughs> um, but I thought it was a really good. I thought it was a really good movie. I thought it was a very much a, what someone called A. O. Scott maybe called it a understated masterpiece or something, and maybe that's a little too much hyperbole for Boyhood. But I thought it was very very well done, and I think it really held up in my second viewing. I watched it again oh. recently, and really? uh, yeah, I thought it was really well done. But I can totally see where there is a predictableness and that this there's a clever sort of uh, little device that Linklater is doing. Oh, that's kind quite neat that he's doing this thing where he's sort of like it's this time lapse. But other yeah. than that, it doesn't do anything else narratively speaking in terms of story. Right. There's no surprise. There's no... 
I think it said a lot about masculinity, though, yeah. in a deep sense. And I think uh, also men's relationship to alcohol is something that's really understated in that film. And that runs throughout the entire movie in a really interesting way. Um, I think that there are a lot of very understated and sort of very quietly profound moments throughout the film that I started picking up on in that second huh. viewing. And I really enjoyed it. I, I really, I think it fell flat for me the first viewing. I watched it in the movie theater and I was like, eh, you know. Maybe I should see it I again because I, I thought I it was three hours it. wasted <laughs> of my life. It should have been an hour less. It should have been an hour shorter. What well, about the idea is when they made the movie, right, they were writing the script like as they went. Yeah. Right. They they went into it and so and that was why it like tackled some of those topics. So so the kid just naturally aged into a shitty character? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well yeah. I think it it sounds like, like real life. Well it's like <laughs> yeah. what some people like appreciated me. is why is what other people found very boring, I think. Like maybe it's like an age thing. Like maybe you have to have already experienced the true like coming of age thing in order to well, actually appreciate any of it. Because it, went, it ended when he went to college, and I saw it. I was well, I guess I was a senior in high school. Yeah, Anyways, yeah. whatever. Bad movie. And that's my <laughs> opinion. I didn't like okay. it. But okay, thank you all for listening to uh, Small Town Discourse. <laughs> You're the most important part. The audience, the listeners. Feel free to give us uh, some reviews on iTunes. We're on there now. Only five stars though. Nothing else. If you rate <laughs> us less than five stars. You can't watch this, or you can't listen. listen. N- not allowed. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so uh, SoundCloud, iTunes, all that stuff. J, uh, Doctor J Steinmetz, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for uh, having me. Uh, I really had a fun time. And yeah, so have a see everyone on the flip side in next week's episode. <laughs>